As a reminder, this podcast is made by cardiology fellows to enhance the education experience in the CVICU. The content is not verified by hosts or speakers. The content provided by this podcast is not intended as medical advice. All opinions represented are our own and do not represent the opinions of our employer. Welcome to CVICU On The Go, an educational podcast focused on key topics relevant to the management of patients in the cardiac ICU. Uh, Today we're going to talk about cardiogenic shock, and we're excited to have Dr. Jonathan Menachem here. Uh, Dr. Menachem, I'm going to go ahead and start by presenting a case, and I'll ask some questions as I keep presenting the case, and feel free to add in and expand on any thoughts that you have. Sounds great. So Mr. X is a 63-year-old gentleman with hypertension, OSA on CPAP, and type 2 diabetes presents with dyspnea on exertion. He first noted the symptom about one month prior. He was seen at an urgent care center and was treated for pneumonia with antibiotics. In the subsequent weeks, however, his dyspnea on exertion became progressively worse. And over the past week, he's noted significant orthopnea, PND, as well as lower extremity edema. Additionally, his wife notes that he's been, quote unquote, off lately. At the time of presentation, his initial vitals are temperature of 37.1 degrees, heart rate of 109, a blood pressure of 93 over 68, and he's statting 98% on four liters nasal cannula. What about the story thus far, as well as these initial vital signs, would raise concern for cardiogenic shock for you? Well, I think there's there's a lot of them. I mean, orthopnea and PND in lower extremity edema are clearly not normal findings. Um, resting tachycardia would also be something that would be concerning. And then of course, you know, the, it's probably not talked about as much, but this idea of being off. So it's in, patients in low output state often have, um, they're altered in a way that they can answer questions appropriately and their answers are correct, but they're delayed and slowed. And so that's often a sign that there's just not enough blood flow and oxygen going to the brain. And what about using something like uh, the pulse pressure? Do you put, put much weight behind quote unquote narrow pulse pressures? So absolutely, yeah. So. Um, the pul- narrow pulse pressure is also a finding of low output. Um, this isn't the lowest pulse pressure I've ever seen, but it's not normal. Yeah. And for our listeners, um, you can use the diastolic blood pressure as a surrogate marker for systemic vascular resistance and the pulse pressure as a surrogate marker for stroke volume. And when we say narrow pulse pressures, we're referring to a pulse pressure that's less than 25% of the systolic blood pressure. If patients come in and you're suspecting cardiogenic shock, do you find it helpful to do a quick bedside echo? Or do you just go based on clinical findings alone? I mean, I, I think we should use all the tools we have. So if the patient winds up in the CVICU and an echo m- machine is readily available, then absolutely we should use it. I think, you know, it starts with physical exam. So just to blow off physical exam and not focus on that would be incomplete. Um, but if, if there's one available, absolutely. I, I, there's no downside to doing a, an exam. That's fair. Let me give you a little bit of the story for this gentleman. Um, on exam, he's in mild distress. His JVP is elevated to the angle of the jaw while he's sitting straight up, so at 90 degrees. Uh, he's tachycardic but regular, and he has a great 2 out of 6 holosystolic murmur that's loudest at the apex. He does have bi- basilar crackles on exam, but his belly is soft. He has some trace pedal edema, but he's a little bit tepid to the touch. It's not quite warm, not quite cool either. Initial subtle abstract was sodium of 130, 
create mean of 2.15, whereas his prior known baseline from about a month ago was around 1.0. Uh, he has an elevated total bilirubin at 1.4, and his direct billy is 0.6. We checked troponin twice. The first one was 0.1, and the second one was 0.09. Since it was downtrending, it was not checked any further. And initial lactic acid is 3.1. One of the questions that always comes up is, does anyone where you're suspecting cardiogenic shock warrant a swan? So again, I think it's risk-reward, and I think if you have it available, we should be using them. You know, a lot of the the pushback people give about... um, using swans is based on data that's sort of outdated and not relevant to patients like this. I think it's fair to say that we all think that he's in shock. The one noted thing that I noted there, though, is that, you know, he you didn't mention an S3. And an S3 is actually, if you find that, that's actually the highest likelihood ratio for um, heart being in heart failure. But beyond that, everything points to shock. That being said, when you're, when you're going to manage cardiogenic shock that's at this point, the more data we can get, the easier it is to manage and treat with things like inotropes, pulmonary, uh, pulmonary vasodilators if they're needed, or vasodilators, arterial vasodilators, or venous vasodilators. So um, I I think patients like this benefit. And we actually have pretty good data in the cardiogenic shock patients that they do benefit from having swan-guided therapy. Got it. And if I remember correctly, the older trials, like the ESCAPE trial, et cetera, didn't really have a significant number of patients in cardiogenic shock itself to really extrapolate that data. Is that correct? Correct. Um, And to add on to what Dr. Menachem has said, most recently a group here at Vanderbilt published a retrospective um, registry analysis that did show a benefit to mortality with swan-guided therapy in patients specifically in cardiogenic shock. Mm -hmm. So for this patient, we actually did end up floating a swan. Um, an initial set of numbers showed a right atrial pressure of 20. His PA pressure was 37 over 20 with a wedge pressure of 32. His mixed venous was 48%. And when we calculated out a thick cardiac index, it was 1.5 with a thick systemic vascular resistance or SVR of 2,400. Um, based on these, what would your initial thoughts about approaching this gentleman? Well, he's clearly sick, right? So he's got elevated filling pressures and a low cardiac index. His also his SVR calculates out to be high, which again is a calculated number that you have to be careful of. But I think I think where people go wrong in this instance is to just assume that this patient's going to respond solely to diuretics, and what they need is more diuretics and more diuretics, which may be true. But if you think about it, like cars in a tunnel, the only way you get you can get the cars out of the tunnel, you have to unload the exits. And so with an SVR of 2,400, um, this patient's going to need vasodilation in addition to diuretics. So it's a combination of, of things that you're going to have to go after. I know there's oftentimes a variety of different medications we can choose. For example, things like dobutamine or melrinone, and even sometimes we use pure vasodilators like nitroprusside. Right. Is there a typical go-to that you have in these situations or really based on what the numbers tell you? Yeah, so some of it is based on where you're trained. So I've trained at different places that all have different thoughts, and there's actually no data that any particular inotrope is better or worse in any given situation. I think what it comes down to is you have to know how they work and um, why we think certain patients will respond better to certain things. So, for instance, the nice part about dobutamine is that um, it works quickly and it has a short has a short half life. So if you've made a poor decision, it's not lingering around forever. And the same goes for nitroprusside. So 
in patients like this, I think dobutamine and nitroprusside would be very reasonable things to do because um, if you've done something wrong, let's say the patient starts having more VT due to the inotropy, then you could say, okay, let's turn that off. My colleagues at Penn would say that's absolutely incorrect. We don't use dobutamine or nitroprusside, and this patient should be put on milrinone. There's no perfect way of doing it. I think, though, it does show you, though, that in patients like this that are that sick, and you're talking about using inotropes and nitroprusside, it becomes easier to manage in the setting of an arterial line and uh, a swan. Because if you have done something that's incorrect or not intentionally incorrect, but the patient's body is not responding as you would uh, like, it's easier to pick up those changes if you have up-to-date monitoring. That sounds pretty reasonable. And I agree about the differences in institutions uh, where I trained in residency. Pretty much everyone got dibutamine and was very rare to use norinone, especially if there was any hint of uh, renal insufficiency whatsoever. Right. But After- just, to, just to make a comment on that, though, patients with renal dysfunction, are norinone is not contraindicated. So it's not that you can't use it, but you don't know how, how quickly it's getting out um, of the body. So you have to be careful. Uh, and fast up titration of milrinone in someone with renal disease may let, lead you down a, a sort of scary path of uh, hypotension. Got it. Now, let's say we started this gentleman on five of dibutamine and some nitroprusside as well. But despite that, as well as adding IV diuretics, about four hours later, his right atrial pressure is still 18, his wedge is still 31, his mixed venous is still around 50% without any change, at least any significant change in his cardiac index. Would this be the clue for you in terms of either escalating additional IV vasoactive therapy, or would you start considering mechanical circulatory support at this point? It's a very good question, and there's no perfect answer. I think even going back to the initial um, hemodynamics, you have to be thinking about mechanical support at that point. It doesn't mean you have to be you have to do it. It means that you have to be thinking about it. And so I think also, you know, you haven't really put uh, five mics of dobutamine is not a humongous dose. So you do have room to up titrate. I think what it comes down to is not just numbers at this point and doses. It comes down to how is the patient actually doing? So after four hours, you're not making much change in, in numbers, let's say, but the patient is starting to pee. The patient's mental status is starting to improve, meaning that you're probably starting to warm them up and we're just not seeing the results, then you're probably going down the right path. If after four hours you've made no improvements and maybe even things are getting worse, let's say a lactate is climbing, then you absolutely have to think about that. Got it. And then one last question that always pops up in the ICU whenever someone comes in cardiogenic shock is, what time is the right time to start thinking about advanced therapies, things like a left ventricular assist device or heart transplant so that we can get our heart failure colleagues involved. So I have a biased view, but it would be immediately. But I think in order to take care of heart failure patients, you have to think about multiple strategies all at once and and know where you can possibly head. Again, just because you you think by looking at this guy that you know he may need a ventricular assist device we're not going to rush to put it in, number one, and he may not end up needing it. You may be able to get him through this by getting him on the right dose of dobutamine and getting him diuresed. So I don't think you need to put all your money down on one particular thing, but I think it's a nice thing to have in the back of your mind, especially if you're a heart failure person, to say, where can we possibly go? 
in terms of being asked, you know, I think um, heart failure has changed over time where it used to be that everybody was able to, was, shouldn't say able, but everybody was managing heart failure patients. But now we've taken it to a new level, right? So it's not just heart failure. It's now heart failure that requires advanced therapies. I think that in patients like this that have swans and arterial lines that are on inotropes, there's no reason not to ask us for help. And I may walk in the room and say, I don't think we need to talk about transplant yet, but we're happy to help manage, you know, and and discuss all the different options for the patients. Sounds good. Well, uh, at this point, we're at the end of our case discussion. Um, Dr. Menachem, are there any key points you want to part with for the house staff to make sure that they understand before they start their CCU rotation? Sure. So um, I think there's a few things. Um, Number one, getting a a really in-depth history is essential because it's it's not uncommon that we just think that, oh, this person has heart failure and we don't really know why and it's just non-ischemic. And it turns out if you ask them their full family history that there's a lot of relatives that have had heart failure and that can help drive decisions. So I think you can't just anchor to whatever ideas have been put before you because also it's not uncommon that we get patients that are in cardiogenic shock that have been treated multiple times for bronchitis, for instance. And so just because someone has gotten a ZPAC doesn't mean that they don't have uh, heart failure shock. That's number one. Number two is you have to use all the clues that you're given. And I think the heart rate is one of the most important things to think about is that, and we get these calls fairly frequently, that a young patient is in the ER and they look fine. And when you go to see them, their heart rate is 130 and it's sinus. And that's just because young patients manage to tolerate heart failure until they don't. And so that that tachycardic response in a young patient is should be very scary and should alert you that something very wrong is going on. And I, we frequently see those patients when someone does echo them that their EF is completely out of proportion to what you think they look like on the outside. The other thing that also comes up is, is just the idea that not everybody has ischemic heart failure. So it's very common that someone comes in with new onset heart failure and the first move is let's send them to the cath lab and look at their coronaries. And while that might not be the wrong method in certain patients, again, it goes back to the history. So if you have a 30-year-old that has biventricular dysfunction that wasn't a smoker, that wasn't doing cocaine, are there other things that could be going on here? Could this be myocarditis? Could this be a tachy-induced cardiomyopathy that fall outside of ischemic cardiomyopathy? And I think that's something that, that gets missed fairly frequently. So, you know, you have to be methodical about going through the, the, the diagnosis so that we can do the right things. Great. Uh, thank you so much for being with us here today. Um, at this point, we're done with our discussion regarding cardiogenic shock for the time being. Thank you all for listening. And please ask Kaushik to shave his mustache.